John 11, verse 1. So now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. That story's in John 12, but John's kind of giving us a little insight there. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And so Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may also die with him. We're going to take five weeks to walk through John chapter 11. There are so many really significant things about our faith that are in there, and so there's no reason to rush it. And so we will uh, begin today and just look at the first five verses and the implications for us in regard to the subject matter of the glory of God um, in our lives. This is the seventh great miracle or great sign that John records for us that Jesus did in this gospel. We know at the end, John tells us that Jesus did many other things. Looking and reading some of the other Gospels, we know of some things in there that are not in John's Gospel. But this is the last one, and in some ways, this is um, the greatest one. In regard to the significance of what has happened, the length of time, in regard to Lazarus being dead um, four days, this is not the only resurrection that Jesus does in Mark chapter 5, he raises, he raises Jairus' daughter. And then in Luke 7, the widow of Nain's son is also raised from the dead. But this one has such great significance because it occurs after four days. Um, four days, you're pretty well dead, I think, um, at that particular point in time. And so this miracle that Jesus is going to bring is going to show his incredible power. And so there are three reasons John includes these seven signs. The first one is he writes them to affirm that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God and the one that we need to believe in. Secondly, they were designed to elicit or bring about faith in those who saw this. And so it would bring salvation, but it would also those who were already believing, like uh, when he turned the water into wine, uh, it says there in John chapter 2 that he did that miracle for the disciples' sake so that they would begin to see Um, who he is, and place their faith in him more. This last one in regard to Lazarus rising from the dead is to show that Jesus has the authority and the power over death, that death does not have the final word over those who have a relationship with Christ. 
And so Jesus, by giving His life on the cross, is the one who gives us life. And so we will see this great reality over um, these next several weeks, and we'll begin to do that today. Sometimes we use this phrase, um, oh, that's a hopeless case. That's a hopeless cause. And I tell you, four days in the grave is a hopeless cause. I mean, this is really, really significant. And so what Jesus is going to show us here is that any time Christ shows up and there's a hopeless cause, there's a hopeless case, if He's present, there's an opportunity for the move of God to happen and to do something significant. And so there's really not a hopeless case when Christ is around. Now I want to pose a question to us and, answer, and ask it and try to answer it as best I can. Um, when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, this story of, of Lazarus, this really incredibly important story, is not mentioned in those three Gospels. John is the only one who mentions it. And to be honest with you, um, why is that the case? I have no idea. We were forced to kind of speculate a little bit. It's possible uh, Mark was the first um, gospel that was written. It was written sometime between uh, A.D. 50 and 60. Uh, Matthew was written in that same period as well. Luke was written sometime around A.D. Uh, 60 to 61 in that range. And so it's possible one of the reasons they did not include this story in their gospel, even though it is so significant, that it is possible that Lazarus was still ari- alive at the time that they were writing. We know from John 12, verse 10, um, not only did the Pharisees want to kill Jesus, but once they heard about Lazarus, they wanted to get him out of the way as well. And so they were also uh, trying to get Lazarus and, and kill him as well. Ultimately, we don't really know, but they don't include that in there. But aren't you glad John includes it for us? It is such an incredibly important thing for us to understand um, what happens here. So the context of our story is, At the end of John chapter 10, uh, Jesus has had his last confrontation with the religious leaders. They have picked up stones. They want to stone him to death. Uh, He communicates some more things with them. Then they seek to arrest him. He leaves the temple, and he leaves, and he goes. This is in, in late December. So in late December, he leaves Jerusalem, and he leaves, and he goes to the area east of the Jordan where John the Baptist began his baptizing ministry. And Jesus spent his last four months in this area where John started his ministry. And so when the news comes to Jesus, he's been away from Jerusalem, and Bethany, Bethany is just on the outskirts of, of, of Jerusalem. And so um, he's been gone for four months. They evidently know where he is, and they're going to send this news to him. And so that's kind of the context and the, and the frame of time frame of when this is. Another thing I want to see, go to verse 55 just for a second in John chapter 11. Um, we are not long at all um, from the Passover and from Christ dying on the cross. And so John eleven fifty five says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And so that's the context. Jesus is away. He's uh, doing ministry um, where John the Baptist began his ministry. And then word comes to him, it's the, and it's at the time of the Passover. So let me give you a little bit more setting and background of this because I think it's important. So on the doorstep of his death and his ending of his public ministry, Jesus begins, will begin the track, we'll see it next week, it will begin the, the track from there back to Bethany um, for the Passover 
and for his death on the cross. He gets news of his friend Lazarus and what is happening there, and so he will leave that region, um, and he will make his way back, and he will come to a place called Bethany. This seems to be a place in Jesus' ministry that was kind of a respite place. It was kind of a guest house. He had a, a unique relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They weren't just uh, ministry partners, but these were friends. These were people that were really, really had a, a close f- um, friendship um, with one another. And so this story, for me, reveals a very unique thing about the humanity of Jesus. The eternal God who had come to earth, who didn't have any needs, he had taken on skin, he was like you and I, that he needed to eat, and he lived life, he slept, he, he had relationships, and all of this. And so here he is, and one of the unique things that is a part of his life is he had friends. I mean, friends where... When he came to town, they expected, every time you come, our house is your house. Come on in, fridge is open, do what you need to do. You've got a place to stay any time that you come here. And for all of us, we need that in our life as well. Since we need to be like Jesus, one of the things Jesus practiced was having these unique relationships with um, humans. Not just, okay, I'm, I'm the God in a body, but no, this is, I, I'm, I'm God who's a man. And, and he had connection that I think was very unique um, with this family. And so he will come to Bethany. But in Bethany, in John chapter 11, there is a crisis that is going on. Something really significant is happening in the life of this family and in the life of this village where everyone knew one another. And so again, uh, Jesus would spend time there. And I, I thought this week, can you imagine what that must have been like? Let's say over a three-year period of time, um, Jesus would show up to Jerusalem at one of the festivals. And he would come and stay at your house. Can you imagine being a friend? Can you imagine being in that house where Jesus is there and he is teaching and they are connecting with one another and they're talking. People are asking questions. They are laughing. I think Jesus, even though he's called the man of sorrows, he was sinless. I think there's a joy that was a part of his life that, was, that is unlike a joy that you and I could ever, ever know. Um, he was sinless. And so his communication and connection with the Father, the way he related to other people would have been perfect. And so he would have had perfect understanding of their questions, their wrestlings of things. And so this is a, this is a place where he rested, a place where he came, and it will be the setting of John chapter 11. So Bethany sat on the eastern side of Jerusalem by the Mount of Olives and, and uh, just was a very important uh, place for him in this relationship with them. And so here we have Jesus who has a friend and a brother named Lazarus. They have a heart connection. These two sisters love Jesus. Jesus loves them. And yet what began to happen as Jesus has been away of these four months, Lazarus somehow gets sick. We don't know any details about Lazarus. We don't know how tall he was. We don't know if he was handsome. We don't know if he was a great athlete. We don't know what he did for an occupation. We don't know anything about him other than he's sick and he's going to die. And Jesus is going to do something so incredible that people are just going to gasp and worship him as they see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so what had been for the sisters as, as they get word to Jesus, a hopeful longing that he would come back 
And he would come back to the city and he would do something to save Lazarus from dying. Eventually ended up of Jesus not coming and Lazarus passes from this life. So the setting that we begin to look at today is a setting of um, an encouraging topic for a Mother's Day. Death. Aren't you excited, moms? That this is how God wanted us to talk on this morning. But I, I think you'll see that even though the subject matter is a little bit heavy, I think you're going to see today why we have great joy and why Jesus is worthy of our trust. So they get word there and they're waiting for Jesus to come and he doesn't come. And so there's a, the city becomes this place of deep, deep mourning. Jesus doesn't rush back when he gets word about his friend. He just stays about 20 to 25 miles away. So they, they come with a message. He gets it. He decides to stay before he comes back and goes. We know the story. We are very, very familiar with the story. But these people are living it for the first time. They don't know what's about to happen. And so they, they believe Jesus loves them. They've got this connection as friends. Not just we're a retreat place, but these, they love each other. Jesus loves them. They love Jesus. And so they're living in the moment that he's not in a hurry to get back to Bethany to do something about what's heavy on their heart. But you see, Jesus doesn't have to always be in mankind's time frame and in our kind of hurry and rushing. He doesn't have to do that. What difference does it make if he shows up before someone dies or after someone dies? He has the kind of authority and power to speak and do something. And little do they know at this point that as they reach out to Jesus in their time of crisis, that Jesus, now listen to this, is going to intentionally intentionally not accidentally not lose track of time i lost my day planner no he's going to intentionally hang around in this place for a couple more days before getting to bethany he will hear the sense of urgency that those who have been sent communicate with them but instead of getting up and walking the 20 to 25 miles immediately at that particular point in time jesus just stays there so he could have healed Lazarus from where he was or he could have gone and healed Lazarus that's ultimately not even the issue here's the issue listen to this and it may fall into your brain and rattle around a little bit depending on who you are it rattles around a little bit more it was God's will listen for Lazarus to what die it was the will of God in this moment, for Lazarus to die. He waited the extra time, as in the delay, because God was going to get the greater glory in Lazarus' resurrection. So it was the will of the Father. Jesus only did what the Father said, only did what the Father did. The Father's instructions were, don't get in a hurry to go to Bethany. And so Jesus stays. And it is for our great faith that we will see today what this does for us. God delays. Has he ever delayed in your life? Would you raise your hand, kind of? Has he delayed? Yeah. We're like, come on, God. Let's go. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's get this, get this thing going. And God, God's waiting, and God's waiting. And the reason is, is he is always about his glory. He's always about doing something, and he's going to do it in his time frame. 
And when he does it in his time frame, it's going to be absolutely perfect. So let's talk about this subject this morning. Here's, I've only got two points with multiple subpoints. all right? So here's point two this morning. The glory of God in all things. That is the aim of John chapter 11 in regard to Lazarus. Is that the glory of God would be, would be revealed in Lazarus' life and everyone else's life. And that Jesus would get the incredible glory of this. And so in verse 4, if you look with me again... Jesus gets the news, and he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Lazarus' death and Jesus' delay are designed to reveal the magnificent glory of Christ in all things. This is ultimately church. This is ultimately God's purpose in all things, is that God would get the glory. And when you and I give God the glory and God gets the glory, you know what His people get? We get joy. So when God gets the glory and we sing a while ago, it's your mercy, it's your mercy, God, that has come to us, and He gets the glory, we get the joy in what God is up to. Now let me remind us, of the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is that we are to give glory to God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, you can take notes of these, I'm going to kind of read them fast. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, He chose us in Him, listen to this, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Now listen to this. Why did He do all that? That we, our lives, would be to the praise or the honor or to the glory of His glorious grace. God, everybody in the room this morning, created you for His glory. That is our purpose. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 43, verse 6 and 7, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. And everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we were created for His glory. God restored Israel for the glory of His name. The prophet Ezekiel writes to us these words. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, act, but I am going to act for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And so their restoration, when he would bring them back, would be so that he would get the glory and his name would be honored. John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28, Jesus speaks that He endured the final hours of His life before His physical suffering began. And He said these words, for the glory of God. John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And listen to what He says. Father, glorify Your name. And a voice, when Jesus said, Father, glorify Your name, then a voice came from heaven i have glorified it and i will glorify it again 
John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus tells us that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, listen to this, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then God instructs us, in case you just want to make sure He covers everything, covers all the bases. So He has the Apostle Paul write under the inspiration of the Spirit these words. So whether you eat today, eating, Mother's Day, a lot of eating is going to happen, possibly exercising tomorrow, whatever you drink, whatever you do, when you make your bed, when you work, when you exercise, when you drive, when you relate to your spouse, when you go to the backyard and get your pooper scooper and get the dog stuff out of the backyard, everything you do, Paul writes, you do for what? To the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever it is that you do, you do for the glory of God. And so Christ is going to allow intentionally Lazarus to die and breathe no more. Watch. He is going to allow two sisters who love their brother to grieve for four days. They would have the stress of leading up to his death. He is going to allow that. Why? Because he's going to do something so amazing that will bring about his glory. This is the aim of Christ. This is the aim of the Spirit. This is the aim of the Father. That God would get the glory in everything. And sometimes in our lives, the glory of God comes in the hardness of waiting. Of waiting on God to come through. And though Mary and Martha could not see it as they watched Lazarus pass from this life, but Jesus knew what He was up to, and He knew that a greater glory was going to come and and happen in the midst of their lives. Sometimes in this life, it just is what it is. And what it is, is sometimes very painful, very dark, very heavy, where we ask why. And sometimes we can bring a an issue or a problem, we can bring it to God in great honesty. We can bring it in great passion and great desperation. And we can lay it before Him and say, God, I, I want you, I need you to do something. And, and there's a sense in which we, we just hear silence back. We're making it known. And we're pleading, we're laying it before Him. But it seems as if He's delaying. Is He hearing us? And sometimes the days pass. And we don't know what the ultimate answer is going to be and how it's going to come. And sometimes the situation can get worse and we move into the realm of even deeper desperation. And we long for an answer in a specific moment and it doesn't come that day or the next day or even in a week and sometimes even longer. So let me ask the question, so what is he doing? What is, what is he doing in the days where we're waiting or pleading and we're asking him, to do something. Let me tell you two things he's definitely doing. He is being good as he waits and delays, and he is being God. See, he doesn't operate in our time frame. His ways are so different than ours. And so as we are waiting, he is cultivating in us a desire that he would sustain us as we wrestle with the things that we wrestle with in this life. You see, Jesus sees the outcome of the crises in our life 
before they even get to their highest point. He already knows the solution. He already knows what's going to come. And by the way, sometimes in this life, the full solution doesn't come. But for his people, the full solution eventually comes. Where we step into his presence and we are with him for all of eternity. So Jesus will bring about his glory either in this life or he will bring about the great glory in the next life. Um, But sometimes in the yuck of this world, there's a beauty that happens and takes place that causes us to taste of his glory and to be reminded of where we are headed and the hope that is there. On May the 24th, and just a a bit of time from here, will be the five-year anniversary of um, my wife's surgery and the removal of her cancer. It's hard to believe it's been five years. And, And through these five years, she has often talk to me about the lessons that she has learned in the midst of all of this from early on wondering is this is this cancer okay it is cancer okay now there's going to be surgery now there's going to be this now there's going to be chemo now there's you know about two and a half years into it after that okay the doctor says okay you seem to be cancer free the scan doesn't show anything and now five years from now and so on may the 24th her surgery doctor is going to say I don't need to see you a couple of times of the year I'm just going to see you one time of year and so you get to these things and so sometimes sometimes there's these unbelievable lessons that we learn about the glory of God as we wrestle with and deal with the suffering that comes in this life and I want to remind us before we move on to some real practical things this morning about what's happening here is that God always knows more about our situation than we do. And His aim always is in those moments is for you and I to get great joy out of Him getting the great glory and our trusting and being developed in our faith with Him. Proverbs 15.3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. There's not a place that the eyes of the Lord are not keeping watch on the evil and the good. Nothing slips by God. So if you're in the room this morning and you are heavy, heavy hearted and nobody knows about it. Oh, God knows about it. He knows intimately every single aspect of that. And in these moments, it's where His people learn to trust and believe in Him. And sometimes we cannot fully figure out what He's up to, what is He doing, or why He is allowing something. And we are to do this. We are to have faith in him he tells us in john 14 let your hearts not be troubled believe in god trust in me believe in me psalm 62 8 says this trust in him at all times O people pour out your heart before him god is a refuge for us so the highest aim in life your life your family your relationships your work ethic mine is that God would get the glory in all things. But sometimes, in the midst of this, this is the great call upon our life, there are some really, really high things. There are the highest moments of crisis that enter into our life. And so what do we do in that? He wants to get the great glory, and yet our life seems so crushed under the, the weight of living in this life. And so I want to talk about that for a moment, because I think it's really important this morning. So this crisis in Bethany is real. 
There is a brother about to die. The brother does die. The sisters are overwhelmed. The people that know them are overwhelmed. And Jesus is not in town to do anything about this. So initially they send word and they rush off word to get it to them. And sometimes in our life, the moments are, let's just be honest, the moments in our life, they are out of control to us. But they are not out of control to Him. Ever are they out of control to Him. Sometimes we sense, okay, where, where are you? But He's present. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. He knows He never leaves His people. So He's aware of what is happening and taking place. Remember Matthew 8, 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And so Jesus said the word and the servant was healed. I bet Mary and Martha had likely heard that story, don't you think? You know what happens? I know what happens in my life. Sometimes I've learned these lessons and a new crisis comes and it's like I've forgotten all the lessons that I've learned. I've lost some of the stories and the teaching and the things that are happening. And so all around this room this morning, all around our world are the incredible issues of life. And I guarantee you in this room this morning, there is deep heartache, there is deep heaviness that some of us are carrying. There are broken relationships, there's sickness, there's deep heartache, there's sadness and depression, there's death, there's disease, there's corrupt cultures. And on and on it goes. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. He's in a place of weakness where his body is not going to recover. And Jesus ends up telling the disciples, no, he's, he's died. He's, he's gone from this life. And this is a big ask that the sisters are asking. Will you stop my brother from making sure that he continues breathing. I don't want him to stop breathing. Will you come? Will you, will you do something about this? And so I want to say something to us this morning. Because I think the Bible teaches it. Jesus teaches us this. If we know he can and we know he is able, there is no reason why we can't ask him for big things. Ultimately, it rests with his will anyway. But the sisters know He's got the power. The sisters have this heavy desire on their heart. And so if God can and God is able, I think we are invited to lay before Him big things. God, save my children. Save their salvation. God, intervene in my marriage. It looks like this is over with. God, um, help us in our situation. We're about to lose the house. And so whatever the case may be, God, I've got this this thing that just chronic and it's in my life. So I, I just want to encourage us, lay things before the Lord. He can and He is able. Leave them there and trust that He will bring them about in this lifetime or He will bring eventually an ultimate healing when we leave this life and we go to be with Him. And the reality is in our life is this is where faith enters, that where we have to trust and we have to plead and we have to pray. We feel the great pressure. Can I remind you that he feels none? We feel it. And it's real to us. And he gets it. And he's interceding. The Spirit is interceding, Romans 8, on our behalf. And so we trust him in those moments. I was 20 years old. Um, I've been a Christian for, I don't know, two and a half years. And 
I felt God was calling me into the ministry. I was going to school at West Texas State, and um, I gave a testimony at a little tiny church on the north side of Amarillo, and they were looking for a youth minister, and they said, hey, are you interested in potentially being our youth minister? And I was like, well, I don't really know. Can I talk to my grandfather and just kind of talk about this? And, and I thought, okay, yeah, um, if you're willing to take a chance on me, I'm willing to take a chance on you. But um, I've never publicly stood up before anybody and spoken. I, I'd never done any of that stuff. And so I rated my grandfather as a pastor, so I rated his sermon file and started preaching my grandfather's sermons. Uh, I used to get these cassette tapes and these little booklets from John MacArthur. And so I started teaching these books from John MacArthur to my youth group. Just I had no idea how to put together a Bible study, so that's kind of how I learned. And so, um, and so that's kind of how I, I you know, began to learn this. But I was just 20, and some of the kids in my youth group were 18. They were seniors about to graduate, and I'd only been out of high school a couple of years. And we became really, really tight friends. And so we decided that one day we were going to go to the T-shirt store in Amarillo. This was pre-screen printing, and, you know, this was way back when. I lived in the 1900s. I was born back in the 1900s, and, and so uh, we were a little behind on some stuff back then. And, and so we went, and we all got blue T-shirts, and on the front, we put the words, just to let it, we were so creative, I tell you, we were creative. It said this, I have... And on the back, it said, no pressure, 1 Peter 5, 7, just the reference. Here's what it says. Cast all of your anxiety on the Lord, because He cares for you. So we used to, that was pre-texting, pre-cell phones. So that's when you called, or you saw each other, and you said, hey, on Wednesday, everybody wear your shirt. So we would wear these, and that kind of became our motto. No pressure. No pressure. Why? Because we've cast everything on the Lord. And listen to this. As Peter writes this, this word means this. It means to heave everything that you're carrying, get it off, put it on Him. By the way, He died so that He would carry our burdens. And carry our sorrow. So we cast these things. We, we throw the weight of our anxieties. The weight of our heartache. The weight of, our, our, of all the things that are there. And we throw them on them. Because He cares for us. And so I just posed this this morning. Why worry when you and I are His concern? When He is concerned about us. Why worry? And He's concerned over the heartache of Mary and Martha and he's concerned over the heartache that is in our lives as well. It's interesting, Lazarus' name means God my help. He needs his name to come and touch him and minister to him. Before we move on to the next thing, so we've got the, we've got the highest aim in all the world, which is the glory of God. And then sometimes in the midst of that, there's the highest crises that come and enter into our lives. So this text reveals this. Don't miss what I'm about to say. People who love Jesus passionately get sick. People whom Jesus loves undyingly and passionately, you know what happens to them sometimes? They get sick. Just 
this life, and we don't want to live here forever, this tasting of this life here wells up in us a longing to not dwell in a place like this for all of eternity. Just a brief time that we're going to be here. That's why Paul, who went through so much persecution and stoning and hunger, says this, I reckon that all of these things, these light and momentary afflictions, are nothing compared to the surpassing weight of the glory that's going to be revealed in us when we step into King Jesus' presence one day. So sometimes those who love Jesus get sick. They have pain. And you know what? They're not healed sometimes. And that's just the reality. But I know this, that our God cares about our people and He has a perspective about life that we need. All right, so let's look at the next thing. Watch, watch where we are. Highest aim of life is the glory of God. Reality in the midst of the highest aim of our life to give glory to God. These unbelievable, devastating things just, they, they weigh us down and, and we, we don't walk up straight and so confident. It's just wrestling. And so what do we need in the midst of that? We need His perspective on the matter. That's why He tells us, look up, look up, look up, look up. Fix your eyes on the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so we, we set our mind, Paul says in Philippians 3, we set our mind on Him who is seated above. And so we must gain His perspective. Look at the first part of verse 4. So let's talk about the highest perspective now. When Jesus heard about this, the illness, He says, the illness does not lead to death. Now, Lazarus is going to die. What is Jesus referring to here? He's not going to remain death. This is not going to be a death that remains. This is going to be something else that's going to happen. And so this illness does not lead to this remaining of Lazarus dying. Now, let me, rem- let me just remind us of this. And this is how we get God's perspective. Not fully. We can't ever fully get it, but we can begin to understand God's perspective of our life, God's perspective of our troubles, God's perspective of everything is so far high and above our perspective that we have to always keep that in mind. Now tonight, if the sky is clear and we can step outside in our backyard, our front yard and look up, we'll just see white things dotted everywhere. We've sent these satellites up into the sky now that that look so far so far in these incredible images of planets and stars and, and galaxies, we we're able to see these things. Now, listen to these words. Think about how far those things are, millions of light years away from us. Listen to what God says. My thoughts aren't like your thoughts, humanity. Neither are the way that I do things like the way that you do things. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so sometimes God's perspective, watch this, God's perspective on planet earth, even though we are weighted down with the crises in our life, and it is heavy, his perspective is so high that he can see all of the ins and outs of it. He knows it intimately, and he knows exactly what to do, and he knows exactly what will come 
and what you and I need in our life in those moments. And so sometimes we have to trust that he sees it and that he knows it and continue to have faith in him. And we will arrive home one day, amen? And he will get us there regardless of the pain and the obstacles that are present in this life. There's not a one of them that's going to keep us if you are a believer, even death. And I take great trust this morning in this truthful statement. Death for the Christ follower does not have the final word on our life. He has defeated death. I met with a couple of boys in our church this week up here to talk about salvation and baptism since we're doing that today. And and as I was asking them questions about, hey, help me understand what you understand about the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important to our salvation? And, and so as we talked about that, one of the things I communicated with them is get down on their level. Sometimes you've got to get down on the level. And so I talked about, you know, when Jesus stepped out of that grave on that Sunday morning, he did this. He just stomped on death and said, you are defeated. I'm the one who's victorious. And he has stomped on that reality. And we need to have that perspective that death doesn't have the final word on our lives. That death for the believer is just the beginning of what true life is. You know, when we get his view on a matter, even though we don't have it all figured out, and by the way, we won't have it all figured out, we will get what we need because his perspective on the situation is so perfect And we have enough of what we need to walk faithfully in whatever it is and whatever it might be. So he delays. The father delays. The father said, wait, don't go. He doesn't give all the details to us exactly of how all of this is going to go along the way. And so what do we do? We cry out to him. We trust and we wait. We cry out to him. We trust and we wait. We cry out to him and we trust and we wait. And And he is not obliged to give us all the answers that we need to everything. And by the way, I think a lot of times we wouldn't do well if we had all the answers. Not having all the answers moves us to trust and continue to trust in him. All right, so here we are. Highest aim of all of life, the glory of God. Lazarus' death is going to do that. Sometimes there's a crisis that's so overwhelming like like, um, Lazarus' death. And so in those moments, we need God's perspective. We need the highest perspective. We need to know the mind of God to understand why we face some of the things that we do. And then we must remember, it's kind of connected to point one, we must remember that with our lives, there's always a higher purpose for our lives. Look at the second part of verse four. So Jesus says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let me give you briefly four reasons why we get sick. First one is we just live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, people get sick and things happen. Sometimes we get sick because there's a discipline that's coming from the Lord. The Corinthian church, if you'll remember, they were abusing the Lord's Supper, if you'll remember that. And, um, and they, were, they were so mocking the Lord's Supper in, in the way they were doing. Paul wrote to them and said, For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body... Each and drinks judgment on himself. And then Paul says, this is why so many of you are weak and ill, and even some of you have died. 
in regard to how they were mocking the Lord's Supper. And then now listen to this one, because this is the one we're talking about this morning. Sometimes we get sick so that the glory of God will be revealed through our sickness, whether we are healed or whether we are not healed. The higher purpose is always the glory of Jesus. Listen to the words from Jesus concerning the sickness of Lazarus. Again, this illness is not going to lead to Lazarus remaining in death. It is for the glory of God so that through what's going to happen, his death, his Lazarus, when I raise him, the Son of God is going to be glorified through it. Jonathan Edwards wrote, The object of all things is that God gets the glory. And when God gets His glory, God's people get their joy. Now just think for me a moment. It's going to be about two weeks away from now. But can you imagine four days of mourning, four days of heartache? Jesus shows up. They roll a stone away. Lord, it's got a stink in there. And can you imagine the devastation in the morning and how it turned to joy when Lazarus stepped out of the darkness in grave clothes walking? See, this is what God does in salvation. He takes that which is dead and He brings it to the light. He calls it from the grave. And in our salvation, this is what He has done. And in our marriage, in our relationships, whatever the case may be, God has the power to call forth that which is dead, to bring it into the light so that that light can bring life once again. So this higher purpose is, is that God gets the glory, but we get the joy that is connected to that glory. Sometimes we ask the question, why God, why? And a better question is, what? God, what can I learn as I'm walking through this? Or the question to ask is, how? How does God want to use this in my life? And we can't always know the answer to all these questions since God often works in ways that are so much higher than ours, but we do know that God always is at work. And I tell you, love His love for us and His giving of His love for us is what we need most. Listen, what we most need is not physical healing, but a full and endless experience of knowing the joy of walking intimately with God. That's what we need more than anything. This sickness had something so much greater than the grave. It was the glory of Jesus. All right, here's the last point. Then there is, we come to know that there is a highest joy in life. And that highest joy in life is found in that this amazing God, this amazing God loves people like you and me. Are you still amazed at His love for you? I hope you are. The text says this, look at verse 5. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's interesting. Two different words for love are used in these first five verses. In verse 3, it's a Greek word called phileo. And it's love that happens between friends and family. There's a deep connection that's there. So when it speaks in verse 3 that he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, it means this, they were bonded together in friendship. Isn't that cool? That Jesus had, he had, he had really intimate friends on earth. And it was found in this family in Bethany. So he, he loved them like, like you love a brother or a friend. He, he loved them that way. They were like his family. Remember his brothers didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy, man, that he was claiming all this stuff. And so he found in this family someone who loved him and, and accepted him. But then you get to verse 5, and this is what verse 5 means. Verse 5 means that Jesus, it's a Greek word, agape. Jesus, agape, he with God's kind of love, loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So he was connected to them relationally and deep, deep love. And then he loved them with God's kind of love because he is God. He could love them in that way. And this unique insight of the earthly life of Christ is incredible. That he had special close friends. That he enjoyed being around them and in relationship with them. His relationship with them seemed to be different than his relationship with the twelve. And I tell you, one of the things that communicates to us is the importance of community, to being in church and being with other believers and walking through life. I tell you, if it wasn't for Mike Hale, Hale, I, I never I say it right, Hale and Wales, I never, I get talked to about my pronunciation sometimes. Or Mike and Mark and some of you others along the way, um, James Roberts has been a, a real rock in my life last few years. You just need people like that in those days where you're like, um, is this worth it? Not, not to, you know, end your life, not that kind of stuff, but just like, gosh, this is tough, and I, I don't know what to do. And you, you, you communicate and you share with people, and they carry you and walk with you. And so I, I want you to, I, I really, I hope you get that. Jesus was self-sustaining, self-sufficient. He's God. And yet, he, on earth, had intimate friendships that he walked with in life. So I want to close with five statements about the love of God, that he loves us. The highest joy in life is this reality that he loves us and he's laid his life down for us. And reconciling, watch this, how do we reconcile that he loves us and we suffer? How do we understand that? Let me give five state four. I said five. It's four statements. I miscounted in my notes. Four statements. The first one is this. Those the Lord loves, this is just a fact of life, they are allowed to suffer at times. Those that the Lord loves are allowed to suffer. John is writing here and saying that Jesus' special love for these three was the reason, what? Was the reason he was allowing them in these moments to suffer because he had a greater idea and he had a greater plan and purpose for them and the pain would bring about the greatest joy here's the second statement those the lord loves will not always know the why of the suffering 
as we already stated, we know, we know that ultimately it's for the glory of God, but we won't know all the intimate details. Why at this time? Why this? It's easy to ask why, but we will never fully know the whys of this life. And it can sound like this sometimes. Why me? Why now? Is God punishing me? Did I do something to Him to deserve this? The why in God's purposes always leads us to know God more deeply when we begin to understand that I don't know the why or I don't know the why so I have to trust in him and so I come to know an aspect of his character and that ultimately he's going to get the greater glory in my life so those the Lord loves are allowed to suffer those the Lord loves will not always know the why of the suffering and the details as to when it came and stuff and here's the third reason and this will sound a little confusing but just hang with me and you may need to look at it at home those the Lord loves They are to understand the suffering that they experience in light of God's love. They are not to understand His love by suffering. So let me read it one more time. You've got it up there. And then I'm going to tell you a story to frame it. Those the Lord loves are to understand their suffering in light of God's love, not understanding His love by suffering. Love always, according to 1 Corinthians 13, seeks the highest good of the one loved. Are we in agreement about that? That's what 1 Corinthians tells us. That love seeks the highest good of the object of the love. And the highest good for all of us is Jesus. And there's a great lesson in this from someone who's impacted my life directly and indirectly for multiple, multiple decades. A teenage girl one time was with her friends in the lake and she dove off of a pier and broke her neck and her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. You may be familiar with her. Her story is amazing. In her book, she writes these words. These words may, again, rattle around in your brain, but just listen to them. God engineered the circumstances. He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. Not everyone had this privilege. I felt there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of experience. She became a, couldn't walk, life in a wheelchair, can't move her arms and legs. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on His love, exercising newly learned trust. I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help me conform to the image of Christ. Something that would mean, listen to this, something that would mean my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, and even my joy. You see, she got to the place where she understood her suffering in light of the love of God, not understanding His love by the suffering. And here's the difference. We just focus on the suffering and try to understand God's love. He seems a little sadistic. But if we realize that He loves us and He he wants us to be like His Son that the only way that we can be like His Son who suffered is to go through suffering so that we can be like the Son. We understand the depth of His love in regard 
to that. And so we understand that all things are in light of His great love for us. And here's the last one. Those the Lord loves will be confused at times by the delay and seeming quietness until a later time. In John eleven twenty one and John eleven thirty two, both sisters, when Jesus finally gets to Bethany, you know what they both say? Exact same words. If you had been here, my brother would have survived. It's not a full right understanding. But sometimes we have to wait. I wrote some things down last night, and I want to close with these because I think they're important in light of what we looked at today. Over the last several years, um, we Christ followers are becoming much more aware that we are living in days of deep, dramatic cultural shifts. Some of those are causing those of us who know Christ to be very concerned about what we see around us. And the reality is, is that we really don't have much control about any of those things. And so therefore, we have to be reminded, we must remind ourselves, we must remind one another that He has complete control. We don't, but He does. So we remind ourselves based on what we have studied today that all of these things that we see, we don't understand them. They are part of His plan. They are part of His plan. He is not, by the way, up in heaven chewing his fingernails off and doesn't have any fingernails trying to figure out what to do next. And while we do not know all of the reasons for his continued delay in allowing the things that we see around us until he makes all things right, I do know this, that he certainly knows what he is doing, though I don't know everything that he is doing. And so accordingly, we have to trust him with all that is going on. And one of the things that I think we must do, and I want to say to us honestly this morning, is to examine our own hearts and what we are saying and speaking of and sometimes saying and living before a lost, confused, broken culture. When we as Christ followers look exactly like them, we talk just like them, we live in fear just like them, and we are running to and fro in a state of frenzy like chicken little did they scream the sky is falling we as God's people scream the sky is falling when we ought to know that he's sovereignly in control and we don't understand all of the stuff that's happening but we know that he is in control because the Bible is clear about that and so each time that we do that we say to our culture that we do not affirm that God is sovereign and can be trusted why should they listen to anything that we have to say if we look exactly like them. We should also know history. It's really important. Christ followers in the 20th century lived through World War I, the Spanish flu pandemic, 10 years of a Great Depression, the devastation of the Dust Bowl, World War II, Korea War, Vietnam War, and the Cold War. Christians throughout history have lived through plagues. They've lived through famines, persecutions, slavery, natural disasters, and genocides. Nothing that we are walking through today is new. 
So we cannot accurately help and minister and offer direction to the suffering and confused when we as His people are living in a state of fear and panic. In the days in which Peter and Paul lived their lives, they lived under the arm of the Roman Empire. That government over Christianity was not friendly to Christ followers. There's a Canadian pastor you may have seen yesterday, Polish pastor from Poland. He was arrested yesterday driving home from church. They've been defying the orders and holding church, and they arrested him on the highway yesterday. There's a video out there of him on the ground and putting handcuffs on him and taking him away. Peter and Paul knew about that. This is not anything new, church. This is not anything new. It's been happening for 2,000 years. The culture... Roman culture had so many gods, it was completely depraved morally. The church in the first century was under great depression. Um, the government took their property, threw them in prison. They beheaded them, crucified them, burned them at the stake. Paul spent much of his time in prison and did not live in prison in a state of fear and panic, but he lived in one of trust. Whatever happened to him, Paul knew that it was going to be for the good. So those imprisoning him, put him in prison, they weren't going to win even if they killed him. Because to Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, I get Jesus either way, so you just bring Jesus on. Do whatever you want. I'm going with Jesus. Paul knew that. He trusted God and he gave him peace. Paul didn't panic because things that he saw in the capital city of Rome. Some of y'all need to hear this. He didn't panic with what was going on in Rome. And the laws they were making and how anti-Christianity they were in the world around him. He doesn't panic when he sees a culture swamped in immorality. He doesn't panic when he faces execution. He simply continues to be faithful to the task that God had called him. Why doesn't he panic? Because he knows God, his king, is sovereign and in control. And he knows that God brings and allows suffering into our lives for a reason. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Hope. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Dope version. When unbelievers look at you and I during the times of upheaval and suffering that we have seen in the last 16, however long it is, 14 months, whatever the case is. Listen, listen. When they look at Christ's followers during this time of upheaval and suffering that have occurred in every generation, by the way, let them not see us, life point, let them not see us as scared and panicked as they are. We must be different. We must be different. And so what do we do? It's hard. I'll admit it's hard. We cry out and we wait and we rely on His Word. We cry out, we wait, and we rely on His Word. We cry out, we wait, and we rely on His Word. And one day we step from this life and it's all good. All of this is behind us. And so we have to learn the weight. The sisters had to learn the weight. 
because there's a greater good and a greater glory that is coming in this reality. Let's pray.